vintage sand. Hello, hello, hello! You thought we were gone, but we're not. We're back. It was just an illusion. We have returned after a couple of months away in rest and recuperation for our first episode of the 2023. It's the return uh, of the prodigal the, podcast. The prodigal podcast. <laughs> we are back, and it is coming up on Oscar week. We'll be watching the Oscars Oscars together next weekend. Um, and looking forward to that. Uh, we have some thoughts on that that we will share in our next next episode, which of course will be our annual Oscars recap and our favorites of the year. But today we're going to take advantage of the fact that one of our favorite movies, uh, and you know, possibly along with Breathless, I would argue the most influential movie maybe made by anyone since 1960, I would say, in terms of people who have followed mm. this director's lead. It is the 60th anniversary of Federico Fellini's one and only Eight and a half. And so we'll be talking about that. And it also happens to be the 50th anniversary of the other truly great film about the filmmaking process itself. And that, of course, is Francois Truffaut's Day for Night. So we will be uh, talking about Eight and a Half for the most part, but also talking about other films that we love that uh, are about the process of filmmaking. And as we were saying before, there aren't that many films that are actually about film, plenty of Hollywood films. But, you know, about, you know, behind the scenes and the right, story and, right. you know. And a lot of people always mention Sunset Boulevard. But it's not about making a movie. It's about people who are sort of adjacent to the film world. Or there, is, there are films like uh, Singing in the Rain or, dare I say, Babylon, you know, yeah. which, have, which have scenes. I hated Babylon, as I said before. But the scene where they are trying to adapt to sound yeah. and make is, is yeah. actually really good. And the one in Singing in the Rain is just perfect. So a groundbreaking, you know... And and I, what I think Eight and a Half has in common with Breathless is that in their own very different ways, they're kind of postmodern, you know, because they yeah. are they are self-reflexive Mobius strips of film. They sort of bend yeah. back on yes. themselves that, and... Then, go ahead. Yeah, no, and end up being about film as much as they are about what's happening on screen. You could say, as far as Fellini's career, there's there's before Eight and a Half, and then there's after Eight and a Half. Yeah, I mean, he... It, it, it was a, it's a big change. It's like eight and a half is sort of a milestone in his career. I kind of prefer the movies before eight and a oh, half because after eight and a half, it's sort of they started to become more and more. Except I was going to say, yeah. with the exception of Avatar. A, yeah. a lot of people like Juliet of the Spirits. I'm, yeah, not, I'm, I'm not a I'm huge not, fan. Yeah, but it's then okay. You, then you get Satyricon and Roma yeah. and yeah. Clowns. It's kind of like he, mm-hmm. was, he was just trying to shock people after that and, and became so caught up in making outrageous images character development and story and everything kind of went out the window. Well, but there's also a school of people who like, there are a lot of people who like Stanley Kubrick, for example, when he was just telling stories like The Killing and Paths of Glory until he became, in quotes, Stanley Kubrick. A lot of people prefer Fellini's films of the 50s, Vitaloni and La Strada and White Cheek and films like that, when he's just a storyteller and then say that he kind of loses himself with Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half. Which I do, but I do think those are... His two best friends. I totally agree. Oh, We're right. sitting under a poster That's of right. uh, La Dolce Vita La here. Dolce, La Dolce Vita is is my favorite Fellini movie. I'm Actually, just, mine I'm too. I'm, I'm, I'm still an eight and a half. I, but I'm eight, eight, eight and a half is, 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 is um, close second. Eight and a half, though, there's... Um, Fellini was very much influenced by Dante. And, um, Interesting. And in Divine Comedy. And you could kind of see uh, La Dolce Vita as 
the Inferno part of the Divine Comedy and Eight and a Half as Purgatorio. Um, and, and then what's Paradiso, Amicor? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean because the two... Well, that's, that's, that's a good point. The two films where he goes back to his childhood, Vitaloni at yeah. the beginning and Amicord at the yeah. end, are both I love, glorious. I love, I love Vitaloni. Wonderful. Uh, um... And, and and La Dolce Vita is basically is about about someone who's who's looking outward for answers for meaning, and then when you get the eight and a half, it's about someone who goes inward to look for for meaning. Yeah, that's a good. Analogy. Yeah, no, I yeah. can see that, and I love the I love the the role that religion plays in the you know the holy water and the yeah. uh, and the cardinal and the meetings with the cardinal yeah. and such. It is, but I mean, for those of you who don't know eight and a half, and I'm assuming that if you're listening to this podcast, you'd oh wait, one more thing I have to say before we start. Remember, we we gotta we gotta find ourselves an intellectual property lawyer because uh, you guys see the Times last Sunday when it had the yes. list, the, right. Just like we did in one of our recent episodes, it had the Sight and Sound 100 list and everything that was off and everything that came on and what that meant. And we did it way before it appeared the time. So again, if you guys, yeah. anyone out there, knows a good intellectual property lawyer, send us though because everyone keeps stealing our ideas. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and I'm sure we could uh, have a good lawsuit against the New York Times. <laughs> no problem. Well, they got the money to pay. Yeah, well, exactly. So exactly, you know, stop stealing our ideas. Yes, people just revel in them. That's all I'm asking of you. So, for those of you who don't know Eight and a Half, of course, it is, uh, you know, Fellini had made La Dolce Vita, and it was a worldwide success and uh, uh, critical and financial. Also considered scandalous. Right? Oh, yeah, very oh. much so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well... Lots of, lots of good stuff going on there. <laughs> and, of course, important because, you know, that's the first film where Mastroianni is is sort of his... Yeah. And he's great um, in it. Oh, my... He's uh, even better in this, though. And he's I great. Think. Yeah, he's great in Eight and a Half. The thing I love so much about his performance on Eight and a Half is he's so funny. Yes. I, I've never seen Mastroianni give a bad performance. Yes. Even in movies that he did here that weren't the greatest. Yeah. Right. You know, he was struggling through his English. It was just like, but it's Mastroianni. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and he was great in comedies. Yes. Oh my God. When he worked with Sophia Loren. Yep. Um, oh yeah. A agreed. Absolutely. And so, but after La Dolce Vita, everyone turns to him and says, "So, what are you going to do now?" Yeah. And it's just your worst nightmare as an artist. It's just a blank. Right. Nothing. Nothing is right. coming. And until that one blessed day where he has the inspiration to say, "Hey." Let me make a film about a film director who's blocked, and that opening scene. I love. I just. I love that opening. Yeah. Especially when he's on the kite string. The, the, the traffic jam and the opening scene. Those of you who are REM fans, they stole, borrowed that uh, that for their video for Everybody Hurts. So did Woody um, Allen. Yeah. So uh, it is as a visual metaphor for creative blockage. It's it's yeah. unbeatable, and those faces staring at him from yeah. the bus, and yeah. just it's 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 just mad. And then he flies away. But as you say, Johnny's on the kite, yeah. Yeah. and you know, come his, down from there. His agent pulls him down, and then boom, he wakes up with his hand in the yeah, air, raising just, just one that. of the most extraordinary. And as we'll get to later, one of the greatest last. Shots in any one of the greatest endings of all time. I Every, love, I love the ending. Everybody in his life, everybody we've seen in this film together, mm -hmm. dancing in his Nino Rota's Circus March, which is and, one of the greatest scores of all time. Right, we agree on this. Uh, yes, I mean, with Nino Rota, you should just cross yourself whenever you say his name. 
And I, mean, I love the score in this movie. Yeah, if he had only done the Godfather films, he'd still be one of the greatest of all time. But you throw these yeah. in, and you right. know, just just incredible. I mean, and air this idea of the self-reflectiveness is something very commonplace now, but it surely wasn't in 1963. No, not at all. Uh, I have to be honest. I actually, as an eight-year-old, went to see it. Oh, really? I was see, I was wondering if you saw it as a child. I did, and I, there was a reason I wanted to see it desperately. Can you guess? No. What? Claudia Cardinale? That's oh. it. Oh. That'll get me to the theater. That's it. And I went, and, uh, and my sister, I think, took me, but she'd already seen it or something, and she said, well, okay, but you're not going to like it. And she was right. I didn't understand what the hell was going on. It's funny because I didn't actually see the movie until I was in college. But I was familiar with with parts of it because I think PBS must have shown it. And oh, I think did I had it. seen parts of it, and it's like because there were scenes that came. It's like oh, I have seen this before. Yeah. You know, but I, I remember the first time I saw it, though, when I was, I, I loved I it. I have a lead-off question. Now, I, I, oh, have a, go I have ahead, a question. John, you go first. Because mentioning Claudia Cardinale oh. just made me think of this. Um, I'm wondering how today's audiences, younger audiences in particular, how, would, how they would react with his, his vision of women in this movie. Well, the movie musical... Nine. Eight and a half did yeah. not do well. No. Yeah. It wasn't very good. I happen to have actually loved the stage version. But for me, the the aside from the opening and the conclusion, except for Saragina on the beach. Saragina, yeah. larumba! <laughs> um, uh, my favorite scene is when all the women of his life are together in one place. Oh, in the harem? And, yeah, I mean, but I don't, I don't see that as being anti-feminist, I don't think he comes, I don't think he sees himself as being a good and noble guy. I no, think no, he, not at all. He's right? very self-critical. Yeah, very, that, even in that the, scene. Which is part of the reason why he is blocked, because he's, he's constantly checking himself. Because he yeah. does, he does, he like when he gets the writer, he gets those notes. I the love the writer and the notes. <laughs> and he's looking at his notes, he's like, ah, and he throws it. But then what does he do? He pauses for a while and he picks it up and he starts reading again. The poor yep. writer. And by the way, for the for those who uh, those who are wondering about the title, he had co-directed a film with Alberto Latuada called Variety Lights. That was his first film, coming sort of on the edge of the Rossellini De Sica Italian neorealism. So this was the eighth and a half film that he directed. So that's why it has that title. And it's a great title. Here's a question I want to ask you guys that I really just thought. So why do you think he chooses to do eight and a half in black and white? Um, what is what does that add to the party? I don't know. The images are great. The the, the contrast that he uses. Uh, well, what was it? Our second episode way back when was about high contrast yeah. black and white yeah. in the early sixties. Sixties. Yeah. It could be that he just was used to it. Uh, yeah. Well, that and um, just familiarity. I think, I think also because he was using a lot of dream imagery. Yes, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Because I mean, I mean that it, the the part when uh, he's when he goes to the graveyard with his parents. Oh my God! It's I mean it's it's very powerful. I don't think I don't think that that scene would have the same kind of power in, in color. color. I yeah no I agree I, I I think that's the answer if there is one. It, both of what you guys said a that he was you know that he was accustomed to black and white and mm-hmm. b that it's another separation from reality. Yeah it, yeah. it gives yes it, it gives him the advantage of being more dreamlike. So there's not really a plot. Um, so I, let me play devil's advocate because I love this film even more than you guys do, but. <clears throat> 
could you point to eight and a half as sort of the example, the worst kind of example of the auteur theory? I mean, about someone who is creating a film that is entirely about what's going on in his mind, and that's fairly plotless, although there's a forward movement. I wouldn't call it a plotless movie. No, I, I disagree with you. Otherwise, they would never have been able to have made a musical of it. Yeah, no, I guess, but but do you but do you find the film self indulgent? No, or for to use the term no. that everyone used after this, is it Fellini esque? I mean, you know, as well. He, well, if you if you're not familiar with them before, and I, I can see why you say that because occasionally there's that image like, oh, that's just like that movie he made afterwards, which then became sort of more caricature and so-called Fellini-esque, but this I don't feel that way. Yeah, uh, it just feels very crisp and it, direct. Yeah, and, and, it's, and, he, and he also, he frees himself to use sort of a stream of consciousness way to tell his right. so-called story. Which, again, it, you, see, really you see that all the time now, even on, you know, yeah. long-form TV shows, but for yeah. a film in 1963, mm-hmm. yeah. that is really, really daring. So... Yeah. Let me ask my next question then. You just made me think of Citizen Kane because of the way, one of the things that was sort of revolutionary about Citizen Kane was not telling that straight narrative. It was, which is part of the the reason why you don't get bored of watching because sometimes a straight narrative, if you watch it several times, it it doesn't lose, you don't have the same kind of spontaneity or whatever or interest. But with Citizen Kane, you don't have that because it's constantly jumping around on different time periods and from different points of view. Well, and, and uh, one of the things I love about Eight and a Half is that's the way the mind works. You know, yes, he's doing something exactly. at work. There's a moment at work that stimulates a memory, something from his childhood. Exactly. My favorite being, you know, the you know when the woman who's mind reading supposedly, you know, reads his mind and writes down Asa Nisi Masa, yeah, yeah. and we flash back to is it his sister? You know, they're gonna f- they're gonna find the treasure, and that's the code word, yeah. and yeah. Uh, just lovely. Well, and, I, I definitely though. Do think it has a definite plot with the mistress coming to visit him and then yeah, he, him hiding. Oh, what's he doing what's with he her? Doing <laughs> with her. Well, I think that's also she's so different from his wife. Well, I mean, any film where Anouk Amy is the second sexiest woman in the film, <laughs> you got something going there. And she's, well, I, I, I think she's amazing, and I love her as Louisa as the wife. Oh, I oh yeah, I do too. Oh yeah. yeah, she's she's wonderful. I I think part of it is that he's. He's aware of, of himself struggling with, you know, being a so-called mature man and being a big baby. <laughs> so, absolutely. Right. Of being in the wine bath, like when he's eight years yeah. old and the women taking care yeah. of him. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So at one point, Guido because says... You, you, can, you can see him with some of the dream members just like, I don't want this responsibility, you know. I, take this weight off of me, please. You know, I just I just want to be a child again. And while we see very little filmmaking, I remember Terry Gilliam in the introduction, I think, to the Criterion one of the DVDs says, as a filmmaker, I can tell you that this nonstop, he's constantly being asked questions and attacked, and you yeah. know, well, you need to do this, yeah. we yeah. choose choose an old man, you know, and, and yeah. nonstop. And Gilliam, you know, who knows a thing or two about filmmaking, said this is the best, this is the most accurate representation, even if it's not a literal one. We don't see a film being shot you know but of what it means to be a filmmaker of the endless choices you have to make and the pressure and the money and and and, you know especially after you've had a success on the scale of Dolce Vita you know the whole world's waiting and what are you going to do twice in the film first Guido 
the, the Fellini character, says, I have nothing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is one of my favorite lines of the yeah. film. And then at the end, at the press conference, right before he apparently kills himself, which he doesn't, that really loud American reporter said, says, he's got nothing to say. <laughs> does, he, is, does he have nothing to say? Or if he does, if he is saying something, for what lack of a... What is it? I think it's, you know, it's a little self-pitying, like pity the poor artist right. who has to... But like I, Stardust Memories, which was Alan's yeah, version Alan, of this. Yeah. Which, people forget, Stardust Memories was a reviled film. Oh, I remember, but that's because out. he brought the audience in and made them look like idiots, whereas yeah. Fellini doesn't do that. Yeah. yeah, but it was really, really reviled. And when I saw it, I thought... Well, screw you too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, but now I like it better. We like your I've earlier got... pictures. The fu- we like your earlier podcasts, the funny ones. You know. Yeah, exactly. well, no, but, but, <laughs> but it's a film that uh, I've grown to like. Yes, I like it. I yeah. like it better than when than when it came now, out. Now, as I said, I saw it when I was eight, and I didn't know understand it. When I finally saw it in college, it was like, oh, this is great, and she still is beautiful. Claudia Cottonelle. Oh my God! Absolutely, because yeah, I'd seen the like the Pink Panther three times. Right. Well, that's right one of the, that. one of the things I love about Stardust Memories is how, is Charlotte Rampling. Oh, she's oh, great. Yeah. Just, oh, the she, part she's, when she's paging through the book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know, and also adaptation. Although you know, Spike Jones kind of plays, and Charlie Kaufman kind of play that for comedy. Mm-hmm. You know, where they literally he literally splits himself in half as twin brothers, Nick yeah. Cage playing both of them about the the impossibility of the process of adaptation and his frustration with being on able to adapt The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean becomes a film about a guy who can't do an adaptation of The Orchid Thief. But, you know, and I love... Eight and a Half was never made, would adaptation have been made? Right. So, but is... I guess it's really two questions in one. Does Fellini have anything to say in this film? And if so, does that matter? It must, because it's, it's... it's at the top of the list, you know. It's in the top fifteen for not not for well, nothing. Yeah, it's it's not a movie that's that's dealing with us with social problems no, or clearly. political problems, no. but at the same time, or human I, I, problems. I, I, I yeah, well, well yeah, in a way, yeah, it does. It does in a way. I mean, but at the same time. Who cares? Because it's such a journey. It's such a fun journey. It's such an interesting journey. So you're saying that that it might not it might not be about anything external, but the uh, internal mind is so is interesting enough to make it worth our yeah. time. I mean, to you watch. can argue that La Dolce Vita has a, is a movie of more depth that attempts to it is that attempts to deal with more important the shallowness like, of you know, yeah, of that yeah. group. Yeah. All yeah. right, but I. I so my take on it is that he doesn't really have anything to say about the world. What he has to say is about the mind of an artist yeah. and I'm not an artist, but I've seen this film a dozen times and I find it more interesting every time. No, you now, don't have to be an artist to appreciate it. Right. Not at all. No. But but it but it's an amazing risk on his part. It's quite a high yeah. wire act, isn't it? Yeah. To think that people are yes. going to want to see, you know, something that clearly influential on someone like David Lynch, who also in a lot of his films will just throw whatever our beautiful artistic visions are in mm-hmm. his mind out there. And you know, a lot of people say about Lynch, "Why should I care? I don't care what's going on in your brain. I really." But for me, 
like Fellini, Lynch is interesting enough an artist that I'm curious. I want to see what's in there. It's all kind of dark and yeah. spooky and interesting. Yeah. So well, like uh, Mahalan Drive, basically. yeah. Yeah. No, right. and from a racer head on. I mean, there's there yeah. there's that power of imagination. So the acting. Talk to me about the acting, guys, since that is your... I agree with you, Mike. I think oh. Anna Gamey is just oh, she's, spectacular. She, I, yeah. I often wonder why or if she didn't have more of a career. I mean, three I years she later... She was in A Man and a Woman, yeah, three, right? Yeah, that was her only Oscar nomination. <laughs> and, I mean, the only other movie that pops into my mind with her is the Robert Altman film, Ready to Wear, which she has a major role. Aporte. Port-a-Porte. Yeah. I don't know. I always liked her. I, I always liked her. She's know. still with us. Maybe it was maybe it was by choice. I don't know. It could be. It could be, but... Uh, I mean, she might have been offered a lot of things and turned them down. I don't know. Yeah. Fact checker. Let's look her up. But uh, she was wonderful. I mean, as I was watching it in half, I go, God, you're good. Yeah. And I... just the scene in the bedroom where, where you know, he's... They're talking and arguing, yeah. and she just, she's so hurt by him. Right. And yet she just wants, she doesn't want to attack. It's, it's right. fascinating. And he's awful. And then, you know, when you see the audition scene at the end, near the end, mm-hmm. and, you know, she's hearing lines from her life repeated by the right. actors yeah. and actresses right. trying out. And she's like, what are you doing? So yeah. what do we do with this idea that... Artists, you know, essentially don't live. They use their life as grist for the mill that is their art. I often wondered his relationship with his wife, what the real relationship between him and uh, And Juliette Messina. Because after Eight and a Half, she only did, I think, two films for him. Ginger and Fred. Ginger, Fred, and Juliet and and Spirits. Spirits. She did continue to work a lot in, in Italian TV and made one... Unfortunate American film, The Mad Woman of Shio with ooh, Catherine ooh, Hepburn. Ooh, yeah. Her English not too good. Not a, <laughs> not a good adaptation. No, but but Anuke, the, one of my problems with it is that she's so good and so attractive and so mm-hmm. smart as Louisa that you know you want what the hell is he doing with the mistress who's just blousy and awful yeah, and, yeah. And, and superficial and whiny and everything that Louisa is not. Uh, I think, I mean, maybe it's a control thing. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, and maybe maybe there's that... He, he, the director needs to be in control. Yeah, maybe maybe there's a part of himself that just he, he wants to be with someone once in a while that doesn't challenge him at all in any kind of way and he can just be silly, like, you know, I mean, for lack of a better word, because, I mean, yeah, but I mean, every time I watch him, he's like, what are you doing <laughs> with her? <laughs> Exactly. It's not that she's a, she's a bad person or anything like that. She actually seems to be really nice. But, I mean, she goes out of her way to come see him, and then it's like... And he's also sort of embarrassed by her. Absolutely. Not oh, yeah. sort of. Yeah. He I is. mean... Yeah, it's like... So you just keep asking. Like you said, you see, why are you... What are you doing with her? But I think the idea of Omanoma's directorial control But, but there is her. that scene where, where she... Where he does start to, to direct her. He starts making up these fantasies or whatever. And she goes out in the hallway and her son is like, right. oh, do you need you, something? You've knocked <laughs> on the war- wrong door. And, you know, we've never done that one before. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, but I love the fact that his his introduction, which feels very Amarcord 
you know, to sexuality is is Saragina, those one that yes. wonderful yeah. scene on the beach where, um, the, where the kids escape from school and pay her to do the rumba. I, I was just thinking of something, and because his wife, and I mean, it's it could be. Maybe partly it's the fact that she's such the perfect match for him. I mean, I can almost picture him in his past, like, searching for someone like that. Oh, and, I, and he's finally, like, met this person, he's with her, that, my God, this woman is everything I always wanted. And it's scary. Because it's like, if I give myself, completely give myself over to her, will I ever be able to... And also, she sees, you know, everyone else is so taken in yeah, because she's the great sees artist. Him, she sees him for what he really like is. Like an right. x-ray. Yeah. yeah. Like an yeah. x-ray. And that makes him very uncomfortable. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's kind of like jumping off a cliff. There's there's no return once you really fully give yourself over to her. Yep. I, I mean, but I, I, I always wondered, though, and since, you know, I don't think he ever talked about it, or their relationship, how similar, if it were, his relationship to Massinga. I mean, I, I, I know when he accepted his honorary Oscar the year before he died, he paid tribute to her to the yeah. audience. She was just crying away. Yeah. And then yeah. they'd both be dead in, within a year. Yeah. Which That's really right. sad. Yeah. And she had cancer and he, I think he had a stroke. Uh, or heart attack. I think so. It was sudden. So I want to go back to something. But I've always been curious about that, though. What their relationship. Because right, how- I am sure. I, I'm sure he fooled around. Oh my God! Yeah, it was, well, it was almost you know culturally acceptable that yes. an Italian man is supposed to have a mistress, especially a successful, good-looking one. So yeah, that's that's. It wasn't that good looking? No, Mastroianni was though. But well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you can you can dream. <laughs> so, why should a modern audience go see this movie? Care. Um, Why would a modern audience... They may not. I mean, my younger... I, I took several of my younger friends to see La Dolce Vita, and they all disliked it. They all really? Oh, yeah. Did and they, they don't just, like Amacord either. Uh, okay, well, do you think they just didn't like the story at all? They didn't like the acting? They didn't... Did they said Because it's a real... I mean, let's face it, La Dolce Vita is a, is a real downer. Yeah. Like, it could I mean, be Oh, it. my God. It could be it. Um, but Amacord... I, I can't imagine... Or, and this is something I thought of when I was watching Eight and a Half again, because of the way they were in, in the way we were using sound in Italy at that time. That could be, right? They, it's it's it was, it's it synced flute. afterward. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Like like Rossellini and De Sica did all the way yeah. back in the in the in the forties. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it could be part of it. I mean, the Amacord that shocked me because I introduced. A lot of my college friends to a foreign film via Amacord. Via, that makes sense to me. Yeah. In fact, I, in fact, I remember in college people who who never went to go see foreign films had no interest saw that and they were like, oh, they all loved it. Yeah, yeah. That and Day for Night, those were the two films. That Interesting. Kinda... Maybe it would go down easier with modern audiences because we're so used to that postmodern trend that he started we're we're very mm-hmm. comfortable now watching things that may not emphasize plot it's not plotless michael you're right but it, it plot is not the main emphasis right. you know and in fact it ends with the movie essentially being canceled that that they're making so but what go, yeah, you know, <laughs> spoiler alert going, i never got to the end going <laughs> so you just made it to eight not eight yes eight. all right so i just watch it up to claudia <laughs> I mean, it's, it, then I turned it off. It, 
it's interesting that um, that so many of the films that we love by uh, you know were were pushed off the Sight and Sound 100 poll. Yes, you know, eight and a half fell a couple. Of, I think it fell out of the top ten, but it's still around eleven or yeah, twelve. It's it's, the, yeah, it's and if you look at the director's poll, it's higher. Right. Yeah. So clearly, there is still an audience, even among the people who voted for Jean Dielman as the greatest film ever made. Um, well, I like meatloaf. Um, meatloaf's really good. I just, just, just a little under. I went to see it again at the IFC theater. And? There were about thirty-five people in the audience at the beginning. At the end, there were three of us: one couple and me. Well, but that apparently ha- she tells about how that that happened at Cannes too, and it I'm was screened. Sure. And but the five people who stayed all ran film festivals, and they all asked her to show it at the. I mean, it it has legs. But well, I, I looked at the couple, and they just shook their heads. <laughs> but even you know, when we saw Tar, I saw two people walk out. Yes, yeah, that's I'm not true. Surprised? I'm not surprised. I mean, you know, people don't. I mean, attention spans were getting bad. Trust me, I'm an English teacher. Attention spans were getting bad before the pandemic. Since then. Oh. Yeah, which is MTV. actually I'm like that too, which is why I try to watch almost everything at the theater. Right. Even if I get it on Netflix, I'd rather watch it at the theater. Yep, I saw everything from you know Babylon to Cocaine Bear in the theaters this time, this season. So uh, Cocaine was much better. Bear was much better than Babylon. So I'm then. How can we explain? The fact that uh, a generation of filmmakers that would vote for Jean Dielman as the best film ever made, I mean, and we talked about this in that episode, um, still, you know, and rejected Peckinpah and reject, you know, and rejected Hawks and so many of the directors that and we Ford. know, you know, and, and Polanski and Ford, oh, only one Ford, Searchers, although Searchers is way up. But why does, why does such a white man he's and he'd be the first to say he's a male chauvinist pig if that term existed in 1963 in italian what what is it about the film that keeps the interest of even this generation because i think the characters that he writes are so rich they really are even the smaller characters yes yeah yeah that's true it's very true like for example well louisa yeah, Louis, I mean, oh my God. she doesn't appear in the film until halfway through. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's I like, yeah, I think it's close to halfway through the movie. Right. And his mother. Oh, my God. Yeah. She's wonderful. And and then, of course... Um, and the father, too. And the father, too. But, of course, and then the mistress. He used to draw such nice pictures. <laughs> exactly. I know. And every... I, I love... I, I It's... The view of religion is... Um, shall we say, skeptical after yes. he goes to see Saragina and he's made mm-hmm. to come yeah. before the priest and kneel on the rocks. Oh, yeah. Like, oh the pebbles. God, yeah. The pebbles, yeah. Good Lord. Yeah. And, the car- and the And the scenes with the cardinal And they put the dunce hat on him and everything oh, so God. everyone can ridicule him and shame him. And yeah, yeah, so not a positive... So that may explain yeah. it. I just... I just... It's, it's funny because uh, Fellini always always challenge and poked fun at and criticize organized religion, yes, especially, not obviously, faith, but Catholicism. At the same time, you can see in all his movies, he was searching for something that was meaningful 
in religion. In, yeah. In, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's it's just a constant thread throughout all his movies. Yeah, and that and that sort of brings the Dante idea back in the quest, yes. the search, the yes. hero, the hero's journey, looking yeah. for, yeah. looking for. You can almost picture Eight and a Half as a hero's journey, only a hero's journey within the mind. Right. And what, my God, what I, I still, it's, it's 60 years now, as we said, that's why we're doing the episode. And I'm still amazed at the audacity of it. I mean, yeah. what, a, what a roll of the dice. It could have destroyed his career. Yeah. Very well. Yeah. It could yeah. just as easily have derailed his career as become the legend that it deservedly has become. Yeah. Although. Also, the way we're talking about it, uh, anyone has not seen it, it there's a lot of humor. Oh, it's oh, hilarious. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, you know, he always had that obsession with clowns, although yeah. the film Clowns is one of his worst films. Yeah. yeah I, I don't. I'm, yeah. He, yeah. So, <laughs> so let's use that as a segue to talk. We talked about the opening. Let's talk about the ending a little bit. Oh, boy. So for those Every that, time I climb a big stair, I always think of that <laughs> ending. A long stair. It's... Like to like to John's apartment. No, no, not long, it's, it's longer. So keeps me in shape. A long, continuous stare. There's the press conference where they mm-hmm. announce that they're not going to go ahead with the film, or the film's not going to happen, or whatever. And you know, it appears that he shoots himself, but that's just in his mind. Yeah. And then there's this magical ending where this little circus-like marching band comes on, mm. and. Everyone we've seen in the film, from his memories, from his childhood, from his life, dancing together. Holding hands. Yeah, one time they hold hands. Yeah, they yeah. hold hands. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And the music is just so perfect. Yep. To me, I always took that scene as kind of like the antithesis of the end of Seventh Seal. That that is the dance towards death and this is a dance of life. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this, this is... There, it, ah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely see that. Because they're holding hands, too, as they yeah. dance towards death. But this is... And you the, can definitely see that as almost Fellini's reaction to, to, Bergman. to Bergman. Although they both, supposedly, they both admired each other's oh, work. Oh, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure. But, the, but I, I cannot think of a scene in a movie that was, is more of a celebration of life, capital L, than that last scene in Eight and a Half. It's just... And people have tried to copy it and imitate it. And it's, why does that work so well? Is it just everyone being together? Being together, and I, I, I cannot stress this highly enough, enough, the music. Right, and it ends, everyone leaves, and yeah. then it ends with the band. Mm-hmm. And they all leave yeah. one by one, the yeah. spotlight ends yeah. on the, you know. But if it, it, if it had, a, it was like, it's like Vertigo. If it had had a mediocre score, it would not have worked as well. So it's so funny. This is such a movie about this. The, I was going to say also at the ending too, the because then eventually you know, it goes down to the boy, right? And he's wearing wearing all white, and there's a constant you know uh, repeating of white throughout the movie as as a symbol of purity. It's I mean some people might say it's kind of corny now or yeah. innocence that sort of thing because remember all the other times we see the little boy as he's remembering things from his past, he's wearing black. Mm, that's right. Oh, I never noticed that. Thank you, John Meyer. That well, is, you know, I come up with a few good things once go, in a while. Yeah. <laughs> Earning your money today. <laughs> so, we do this for free, folks. But if anyone wants to sponsor us, by the way, we'd totally be into that. A sponsor. We need a sponsor. We need Lila Kadrova. Where are you, Lila? 
see, we will work Torn Curtain into every episode we do, no matter what it's about. That's right. <laughs> Even though Julie Andrews We've had is... to refrain Mike from putting his head in the stove. <laughs> Even though Julie Andrews has asked us not to. <laughs> yes, we actually have the letter here. So, so cease and desist. It's, it, it is for a film that is that so circles in on itself. It's like the snake eating its yeah. own tail, the Burroughs, and you know, burrowing into his mind. And yet, the end is just this glorious affirmation of the messy joy yeah. and beauty and wonder of life. Yes, I, 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 there's nothing like it. Yeah. That's why I think I think it's such a beautiful, interesting contrast between the two movies, Eight and a Half and La Dolce Vita. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. La Dolce Vita is is a downer. Is, is it's I, dark. A downer. Yeah. A downer is really like an understatement. I mean, it really couldn't get much worse by the end of that movie. It's about emptiness. It's about yeah. the empty, like Gatsby is yeah, about and, emptiness. Yeah, yeah but also the, the the different things that happen to him or or don't happen to him because of choices he makes. As he goes along, I mean, some of them tragic. Yeah. Uh, whereas this is, he goes in the completely opposite direction. Maybe that's why he did that. Because maybe, maybe, it's possible, maybe, maybe making La Dolce Vita put him in a real depression. It could. And that's what was part of what you was know, blocking And that him. happens yeah. with, uh, sometimes with art, which when yeah. we get to the necrology, there's a, but a I, person who, whose art affected her. <laughs> I would also say that it is, in terms of film anyway, it is one of the great examples of understanding the artistic process, yeah, of yeah, getting a glimpse definitely. inside the mind of someone definitely. who, love him or hate him, is a great artist, and seeing that process in all its messy glory. And for that alone, I think Eight and a Half is still worth our attention six yeah. decades later. Yeah. So any other moments in the film that you... I mean, I, I Saragina on the Beach is just beautiful and leads up to a similar moment in Amacord, right. right? The uh, the large woman and that I mean the 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 woman the women in his life all together in that scene is is glorious. Um, you know, when he sends the uh, showgirl upstairs because she's too old and you know Gosh, the rules. 30. That's the House rules. rules. House rules. Him talking to the clergy. Yes. To the, to the in the steam my, in the steam room yeah, yeah. that's one of my <laughs> oh, yeah. well I love when he's when he's the, the writer is like going on and on he goes, just like waves his finger and he's hung <laughs> <laughs> oh, exactly and then he's fine two minutes yeah. later but yeah. you know it's again yeah. so yeah. it's wonderfully hard to tell especially more the more closer you get to the end it's hard to tell what's really happening and what's in his head I really love that part when you know the uh, the so-called mistress. Shows up at the that outside, you know, at the cafe. cafe. Oh, that's cafe a great scene. When his wife and is he there, and, wife and he and, and he friend. basically and he right. basically tries to become invisible. <laughs> he just holds the newspaper <laughs> as if, and the wife knows. Yeah, everybody, you know, everybody knows or whatever. It's, and a, he's, it's hilarious. And he's trying to pretend like it just doesn't exist. Like, no, you, you have it all wrong. Or I don't know why she's here. <laughs> I don't know who that is. I don't know, who, you know. So, and then, and, but then he suddenly goes at. It cuts to her and suddenly goes into the fantasy and she starts singing. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have a lovely singing voice. Um, so it is, while, you know, as I mentioned with the Gilliam thing, while it is not explicitly about, we don't see a film being made, it is, according to no less an authority than Terry Gilliam, you know, one of the best films ever made, if not the best ever made about filmmaking. So with that as a segue, what are some of your other 
favorite films about, not about, you know, there are tons of films, you guys mentioned Sunset Boulevard and, you know, all the way to Babylon, uh, about Hollywood, tons of good and bad Hollywood films. Yeah. But mm, mostly bad. Mostly yeah. bad. Well, I Sullivan's mean, Travels. Oh, Sullivan's yes. Travels oh, is yeah. wonderful, that, which I, I recently I, saw I the film it. form and I like it even more. I love it. I mean, which, I, which is about a director trying to yeah. make a movie. He goes to, but it's not really about making the movie. No. It's about him going off on this adventure to try to find out, you know, oh, how brother, to make. Where are they? Yeah, I find as when, opposed to Ants in Your Pants of 1938. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, I, I find sometimes when directors, Hollywood directors, try to make a movie about making a movie, that they often fail. One of the worst films of the early 60s is Two Weeks in Another Town. Vincent I have Minnelli. never seen it. Oh, don't bother. You've it's, mentioned that. It's, yeah. it's kind of a soap opera. It's soap opera. And there's that part two with uh, where they're driving in the car. Uh-huh. And, it's, and it goes it's, faster. And it's, very, and it's very stylized. And it just, unfortunately, just comes off very fake. Because mm-hmm. it's it's in such contrast to the rest of the movie. Yeah. And since Cherise plays a, like the real like horrible, horrible person, very different from anything else you've ever seen her in. Now nice. and but and we had not one but two movies this year about you know portrait of the filmmaker as a young man and that was James Gray's Armageddon Time and Spielberg's Fablemans and you guys like Fablemans more very than I very did. much yeah I liked I liked Fablemans a lot and I did not like Armageddon Time because you didn't like the boy I I no I hated the boy <laughs> interesting <laughs> I, that's I, why I kind of felt that well one of my problems with the boy was that he seemed like he was so much younger like maybe he was in third grade and he was supposed to be yeah. in what seventh grade? seventh grade I thought the other but I thought Anne Hathaway was great as the mom she was I fine was shocked I at how it, good Anthony Hopkins was as I thought the grandfather every, no I thought everybody was, I thought, was good and I in thought it I just, uh, it was the casting of the boy and the way the way he and, and not only that but the fact that he came off as someone so much younger it's like I don't understand what's going on here. yeah and this is supposed to be his, I mean it, it obviously, kept taking me out of the movie yeah me but too. I didn't love the casting of Michelle Williams as uh, I had no problem with that I thought she did a very nice job I think she was wrong to put herself to insist that she was the leading actress in oh that well movie. that yeah that's another story because I think if she put herself in the supporting actress she would have been nominated she would have yeah. definitely been nominated yeah. and probably would win but see I would have nominated Hopkins for best supporting over Judd Hirsch who's there for one wonderful scene and then gone I mean he's out of the movie as the yeah. grandfather but he is great so, he is great yeah yeah I'm very surprised at your reaction to that film. But I, you know, but one thing I did like about Fablemans was, you know, it opens with your favorite film ever made, The Greatest Show on Earth. <laughs> but <laughs> well, I have to, I have to say, I know when uh, the young man, I forget it, what was the character's name? I've only seen it once. Fableman. I, for, I oh, forget what his yeah. name is. Yeah, when he comes out, he's just overwhelmed by how they did that. When I. The first time I saw that same movie, I was like maybe eight or nine, and my first thought was, how did uh, Betty Hutton have a film career? <laughs> wow. But, but, <laughs> and I meant that. And you're still right. <laughs> but the, the, the train derailment is a great sequence. It's it the is. one yes. watchable thing yeah. in the film. And I should yeah. I, and I've never seen uh, Greatest Show on Earth at a theater. On a, live, on a big screen. Yeah, I mean, I can understand. I mean, I love... I, there's a film I prefer to both of those that it's in the same genre, and that's J.J. Abrams' Super 8, 
you know, which is I've never seen. which is wonderful, and it's about him because it's so deeply influenced by Spielberg because he came of he's about my age, so he was like in his late teens when ET came out, mm. you know. So when it, it's about the you know these kids making a Spielberg film and it ends mm-hmm. like a Spielberg, it's lovely. If you haven't seen it, you know Abrams is up and down and trying to save every franchise of my generation, Star Trek and Star Wars and everything else, but um, Super Eight is actually my favorite sort of portrait of a filmmaker as a young filmmaker uh, uh, movie. But let's talk about Day for Night. Oh, let's yeah. go grown up a little now, bit. When when I would say that I would not take my some of my younger friends to eight and a half, I am hoping that there's a 50th showing, 50 years showing the, Day for yeah, Night. I have never met anyone, Who whether like they were in the film business or not in the film business, who's disliked that movie. Well, it's so much fun. Yeah. It's fun. It, it, compared to eight and a half, it's light. Except as the the ending, as you pointed out. I do out, not John. like that ending when they kill him off. To me, that is lazy Spoiler writing. I don't That's think it's true. <laughs> to me, that is Truffaut sitting in his room, you know, thinking, I don't know how to end this. Oh, I'll make them think I'm really profound. I'm going to kill him off. I disagree. And the reason I disagree with that, not because you feel bad that he's dead, but what are they going to do? Right. With the, with this. this is something that people but don't he's, think but of. He's, he's finished when he. He wasn't. No. What was le- I don't. They had to do the le- shooting scene. Remember, they had to get oh, a double. Right. You're right. And You're the uh, insurance person, played by, and he's not credited in the film, the man who speaks in English, saying, "No, no, no, you cannot replace Alexander." The, the novelist Graham Greene. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Of all he people, he just has two lines. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But but yeah. little little aside trivia, but that does happen. I mean, we when, when I was doing the necrology on um, um, Douglas, um, you know, special effects. Oh, Trumbull. Trumbull and his movie of Brainstorm. How they the Metro Golden Mayor wanted to scrap. Right, because Natalie Wood. Natalie Wood. She only had yeah. two scenes to finish, yeah. and they had to fight. But this does happen. <clears throat> Oddly enough, not a lot. Well, see, now it's not a problem because you just CGI the late Carrie Fisher into the last Star Wars well, film and you're, you know, right, you're good you go. to go. But uh, this is why Spencer Tracy couldn't get uh, insurance for yeah. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yeah. Jessica Tandy, people don't know this, Jessica Tandy could not get, um, she had to put her, her entire salary, I think it was, or most of her salary up. When she did Driving Miss Daisy. For Miss Daisy. Because she, had can- she was a cancer survivor. Uh, I didn't know that. And she was 80. And what happens if she dies midway? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw. Well, and I'm gonna throw I, in. I'm, a, I'm trying to think though of, of another movie besides Day for that, Night, where, where every where every single scene in the movie really is, is about, about making the movie. Is about. I, I mean, mean Irmavep is is that kind of kind of does sort of, but also Irmavep takes a lot more leeway outside of like it you does, know, and it has that other. Are, Meta layer of it being a movie about a remake of yeah. the Fuya. And uh, I, I recently cereal. watched Irma the first time in 27 years since it came out. It was on TCM, and for this podcast, I made it a point to watch it again because I remember not liking it, and I still don't like it because mm. I still don't buy it. The characters, like the um, the I costume the designer, I love the director. The costume designer and the uh, which director, the one who takes over. No, no, no. The 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 Jean Pierre Lowe. Yeah, Jean Pierre Lowe. But the the whole uh, uh, the associate producer, 
versus the costume designer, and she says, I've hated her, da 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 And she, she sells drugs on the set. If this were true, she wouldn't be working, that costume designer. I, I I'm guess. sorry. It was just, it's just, it, I, it's a and stretch. And I just... But talk yeah. about a movie set where people didn't like each other. Oh, my God. <laughs> and <laughs> now, Steven Spielberg, just two nights ago on TCM, introduced Dave Frank. Dave And he said, for him, it was the most realistic movie, movie about making a movie. Yeah, I can't. And, I can't argue with that. And he specifically mentioned the cat scene. Yeah, he says it is so difficult to work with. Can't work with. Yeah, but but but, not, not, but, but I, got, I thought Irma Vep did a decent job of it. I'm going to actually argue that the, I don't know if you guys saw the HBO series I that Isaiah did last year. I didn't see the entire thing. I was I watched some of it with Alicia Vikander, where he was he, as yeah. as as Musidora and was able to get more into it. I thought that was wonderful. I think one of the great films about filmmaking that is forgotten about all the time is Ed Wood. I mean, if you want to yes. talk about someone as Terribly untalented as he was, but so passionate about film. And Johnny Depp, when he was still a normal human being, you know, conveys that. And Burton, I love that movie. I haven't seen it in so long. When it came out, I've just never been a big fan of of Burton to begin with. And I didn't care for Depp in it. Mm. I I, thought Martin Landa was good. I don't think he deserved the Oscar. But um, he deserved it for crimes and misdemeanors. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, I, but there, I, there's so there are a number of movies though that are made about like some aspect of the movie living, business or whatever. Living in Oblivion. Yeah, yeah. that, and yeah, that yeah. was Cross, all yeah. about filmmaking. And I just want to. I saw a quote today from Tom DeSello, who directed it. Who's not really directing much anymore. He's directing TV, and he was a cinematographer. You know, he did Stranger Than. Um, the Jamush movie. Oh, Strange in Paradise. Strange in Paradise. He did the cinematography on that. But this was an interesting quote. Have you ever noticed that the entertainment business is the only one where there has never been somebody picking up a machine gun and going berserk? A guy in a post office in Cincinnati will bring an AK-47 into his place of business because somebody used his coffee cup. <laughs> Nothing like that has ever happened in the film business and never will. Never will. You know why? The stakes are too high. It's life and death. No one is ever going to jeopardize their place in the food chain. I'm not suggesting they do, but it's a brutal business. And that is why, and he's right, and that is why I couldn't buy Irma Vep. Mm. Oh, because I... these were such horrible, Almost everybody except for Maggie Chung. Yeah. Which is horrible, horrible people. I also have to say, as I've gotten older now, when I saw Day for Night, you know, I was just a college freshman. But there is a line in that movie that now grabs me. And uh, it's, it's uh, Severion, Valentine Cortez's closing line. The Wondrous. It's a strange life. This is after, this is at a going away party and they're looking at some photos that were taken. It's a strange life we lead. We meet, we work together. We grow to love each other and then, as soon as we grasp something, it's gone. Yeah, that's gone. lovely. And yeah. I sometimes feel that way because- When you do shows and When such. I do shows, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, have, I I've been- that. 
I can't believe this, but I've been in over a hundred plays and stage you readings. You heard it here, folks. I know, it's hard to believe. The man with expense has, has earned his... No, I'm just old. His cantankerousness. On that note, I will return to something we talked about before just a little while ago by Amy. I just looked her up, and she's... Made over seventy movies. Okay, so she's been mostly mostly in France. Then, yeah, and they've yeah, not just a lot of movies we just haven't seen. Yeah. And she she was just in something a few years ago. Okay, she's still working. Oh, I I I knew she was still alive. Yeah. So but, and, well, that's good to know because she deserves she, it. She deserves it. She's, she's right. really quite wonderful. So we mentioned adaptation is another great film about film. We and we should also just mention briefly a couple of films that have scenes of filmmaking that were singing in the rain being the most oh, obvious. Yeah, well. Oh, Pierre, you shouldn't have come. <laughs> no, 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 John. Round tones. Round tones. Hell Caesar. <laughs> I was going to mention Hell Caesar, the musical number with uh, Scarlett Johansson and the, in the mermaid outfit and the uh, scene with uh, Channing Tatum and the sailors in the yeah. bar. Or, or both, and uh, Ray Fiennes trying to teach the cowboy yeah. actor. I love Ray Fiennes. Oh, he's great at it. Would that it was so. No, 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 no. Why aren't you saying it like I am? Would that it was so. Um, I recently watched, because we were doing a state in Maine, and what's kind of interesting... Oh, the mammoth, yeah. What's kind of interesting about that is that every character who's associated with the movie is horrible, except one. The writer. The writer. (laughs) Just didn't see that coming, right? Gee, I wonder why. I have to... I'm a mammoth. uh, Of mammoth, I am a fan of House of Games, and that's it. You can, you can. I like Glengarry. No, but he didn't direct it. No, he did no. direct State. Oh, as a director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No. Uh, and I kind of like Spanish Prisoner too, the one with uh, Campbell Scott. I didn't about, listen you know. to. What do you think of Contempt? Yeah, that's more about the bigger ideas, though, yeah. as opposed to the filmmaking. I, I was just curious because you're a Godard. I'm the Godard guy. I know, and I don't. Speaking love of Godard, he hated Day for Night. Oh yeah. Well, he hated Truffaut. Yeah, he at that point he was he came to a screening, and afterwards he like he said it's a big lie. He and they and then wow. and then Truffaut wrote this long long letter yeah. to him, and the two of them never, never spoke, spoke. Yeah. again. And he actually uh, pays tribute to Godard when he gets all those books. Yep. Yeah, which is yep, a wonderful yep, yep. scene. So yeah. I'm just also going to quickly throw in. Um, I hated Babylon with a with an. As much as I loved La La Land, I hated Babylon, but the scenes where they're adapting to sound are actually really nicely done. Yes, they they're are. They're kind of interesting. They um, are. That's seven minutes out of three hours and twelve. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree with you. And the last one I'm going to mention is Hugo. Uh, when they flash back... So to, no, 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 I'm not talking about... When, when they show Melies oh, making yeah. Yeah, movies okay, yeah. as a young man back in like 1902, yeah. 304, yes. those scenes are just purely magical. I yeah. love those scenes. But, you know, Scorsese, like Truffaut, is someone who, yeah. from the beginning, born, raised, you know, eats, breathes, drinks, yeah. dreams yeah. cinema. So, yeah. I mean, and that's yeah. why Day for Night is so now, damn that good. That kind of makes me think, uh, going back to the Fablemans, I wonder how many younger people would like the Fablemans because... There's so many little things in the movie that you can't appreciate unless you're familiar with a exactly. lot of older movies, yeah. especially yeah. See, especially so-called you know classic Hollywood films. Absolutely. When and obviously John Ford. Right. When when and I David saw Lynch, for that matter. the Fablemans, <laughs> yes. when I saw the Fablemans, I thought, oh, this is going to win the Oscar. He's going to get his because third of Oscar. what it's about. You mean? And 
apparently it's not going to happen. Uh, I don't think so. I hope <laughs> he might. Well, no, no, no. He's not going to win best director. No, no, no. no. He's yeah. nominated, but I don't. Yeah, I don't the guild uh, gave it to the two Daniels. To Daniels. Yeah. Yeah. So that that is our story, and we are incapable of expressing in words how not only how moving eight and a half is, but how important it is in the history of film and in the history of creative arts in general. I think it's just a landmark. I think you know it's one of those things you can draw a dividing line. You know whether it's just Fellini's career or yes. film in general. There's film before eight and a half and film after, after eight and, yeah. and a half, and you see his influence. Everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. But he was definitely and, deserving of a 60th. Uh, yes, and as you and, but and as you guys say, it's not this heavy-handed thing. It's fun. Mm-hmm. It's funny. It's wonderful. And as we said at the end, it ends up being this moving, wonderful, joyous celebration of life, to, set to the tune of uh, a circus band. So there you go. All right, so Mikey, I'm assuming we have a long... Uh... I will try to go quickly. All right, because it's been a while since it's we have while. Uh, gotten together. Angelo Badalamonte, oh. 85. Composer, Lynch music composer. instructor. Yeah. Composed the music for most of the David Lynch films, including Blue Velvet, Lost Highway, Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, The Straight Story, and Mulholland Drive, as well as the TV show Twin Peaks, for which he won a Grammy Award. And he coached Isabella Rossellini on her, in, on her voice and singing in Blue Velvet. He started out as a songwriter and composer for such singers as Nina Simone and Shirley Bassey, and also appeared as an actor in small roles in both Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive. Lovely. Hello. I have to say, when I saw, the first time I saw uh, Blue Velvet and I heard the music, during the credits, I thought, I think I'm going to like this. Film. Yes. <laughs> Just from the music. That has never yeah. changed yeah. for me. Uh, Mike Hodges, British film director, known mm. for crime movies. His first big hit was Get Carter in oh, right. 1971 with, with Michael, Michael Caine. Caine. Yeah. He also directed The Terminal Man and then the big budget sci-fi extravaganza Flash Gordon. Ooh. Good yeah. Queen soundtrack. Bad mm-hmm. film. He made a few other films in the 80s and 90s that he disowned, but came back in 1998 with Coupier, with Clive Owen, which was a... You saw it, didn't you? Yes. Coupier, yeah. Which was a financial and critical success. I really liked that Mm, film. All right, I'll check that out. After that, he only directed one other film, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, in 2004. Frank Alate, writer, director, teacher, and occasional actor. Known primarily for his stage work in Chicago and New York, where he adapted and directed The Grapes of Wrath. Right. uh, For the stage and won two Tony Awards for it. His work in film is slight, but he did adapt for the screen uh, Ann Tyler's The Accidental Tourist. And with Lawrence Kazan, won an Oscar nomination for the script. Right. 88 or so? 88, 89, yeah. She won, right? 88. She won, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're still shaking her head. Yeah. <laughs> I like Gina Davis, but I thought that was a... Jessica Rabbit should have won Supporting Actress that year. So. Yes, 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 yes. Edie Landau, 95, along with her husband Eli, produced or associate produced very literary films. She co-produced both Sidney Lumet's Long Day's Journey Into Night mm. and The Pawnbroker. And then, in 1973 to 1975, was responsible for the American Film Theater, which were faithful oh. adaptations of plays 
that was shown all over the country on a limited basis, two days a month. Among the plays the Landau's helped bring to the screen were Three Sisters, Luther, Galileo, Butley, The Homecoming, A Delicate Balance, and The Iceman Cometh. Didn't they do Rhinoceros also? They did Rhinoceros. Man in the Glass Booth, I remember those, yeah. Yeah. Which ran four hours, the, The Iceman Cometh. Richard Siskel, the critic, described it as a noble experiment with some productions that were close to god-awful, Rhinoceros, yeah, well, zero and yeah. others that ascended to masterful movie-making. I mean, we had had a slight argument about The Iceman Cometh, uh, the film of that. But when you think about it, where else can anyone see, see The Iceman Cometh except New York, London, maybe Chicago? Yeah. Because even uh, in Minneapolis, the Guthrie theaters. Never are those films? Home. Are those films available? Absolutely. Yes, yes. I, I have several of them, um, and you can buy them all. Uh, Kino. Nice. That's Kino. good to know. I yeah. mean, great. And I think it, they might be able to stream it too. Uh, maybe. Yeah. You could. I mean, streaming has gotten so diverse now. So. I know. Edward R. Pressman, film mm. producer. Yep. Produced or executive produced over 100 films starting in 1967. He took on new talent such as Brian De Palma producing Sisters and Phantom of the Paradise and Terrence Malick producing Badlands. Yes. Other notable films were Blue Street, Catherine Bigelow's first feature, Wall Street, Hoffa, True Stories for David Byrne, The Crow, hmm. Judge Dredd, and Conan the Barbarian. Now I have to take a little personal Interesting thing on this. mix. I knew him. Mm. Uh, he produced his first movie was in 1967, right after he came out of uh, college, and it was a film, a black and white comedy called Out of It, which my sister was the lead in. And I got to visit the set, which was his house. He he came from very wealthy family. I think his parents, I forget exactly what they did. They were involved in the toy business, I believe. And so I got to be on the set for several days. It wasn't a set. It was just this big house. And I actually talked film with him a little bit. Wow. He was very impressed with me. And so I asked him if I could be in the film. And he said, well, there's nothing really happening, so, so no. I'm sorry. A week later, I'm back home, and I get a call. And he says, we're going to be shooting in the city. We're doing a theater scene with an audience. Would you like to be one of the audience members? And right behind the four leads, you can see me and the producer's mother mm-hmm. talking away. And uh, you can actually see this. Uh, by the way, uh, it's known for John Voight it was in this movie the year before he shot Midnight Cowboy. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's black and white. It's called Out of It. I'm brilliant in it. It's the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> and A searing interpretation of the third boy to the left. <laughs> and, and, and my career has gone downhill since, I have to admit. But, uh, you and Orson Welles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's hard to recognize him because he has a mustache. Yeah. Mm. But um, you can see it on Amazon Prime for nothing. And if anybody wants to see me at the age of 12, I'm a third of the way through the film. And, right. and he paid me at 25 bucks. Cha-ching, probably the, the happiest money you ever made. <laughs> I know, and he didn't have to. I wasn't SAG. And uh, so every time I would see his name on a mark, you know, on a film, I would just go, ah, oh, he was a good guy. Good man. Yeah. Well, okay. before you go, 
continue. Yes. Uh, you can stream The Iceman Cometh on Amazon. Oh, well, wonderful. Three hours and 59 minutes of it. Yeah. Okay, great. So he cometh, but he so never goes. Probably, <laughs> so I'm guessing you can probably do all 13 of the American Yeah, they're theaters. probably all there. Uh, I haven't guessing. looked them all up, but probably. Yeah, because they were all of, of a one. Okay, Owen Reisman, 86, mm. cinematographer of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. His first big film was The French Connection, which he received his first of five Oscar nominations. Wow. His others were for The Exorcist, Network, Tootsie, and Wyatt Earp. Other films included The Addams Family, The Taking of Pelham 123, and Three Days of the Condor. Not bad. He did receive an honorary Oscar in 2017 and was also president of the American Society of Cinematographers. ASC. Gina Lola Brigida, 95, actress and post-World War II sex symbol. She had been in many films in her native Italy, but made her American debut in 1953 and John Huston's Beat the Devil. That's right. Wow, that was her American debut? Yep. Wow. Other Hollywood films included Trapeze, Solomon and Sheba, Women of Straw, Come September, and possibly her most famous the popular American film, Buenasera and Mrs. Campbell. Right. In 1969. Have you seen that? I have, it's yes. Funny yeah. film. Yep. It's funny film. Yeah. It's funny. She's good. Uh, after appearing on the TV series Falcon Crest <laughs> in the 1980s, she made only films exclusively in Europe and also developed other careers as an artist and journalist. She published her first book of photographs in 1973 and wrote, directed, and produced Riato de Fidel, a documentary based on her exclusive interview with, with Fidel Castro, Castro right. in 1972. She was also a sculptor and a and an exhibition of 18 of her bronze pieces were presented at the Pushkin Museum in Moscow, among other venues, in 2003. Wow. Go to the Bridget. So she did a lot of other stuff besides yeah. being a sex symbol. Gregory Allen Howard, 70. Screenwriter known for writing scripts for Hollywood movies about inspiring episodes in black history. Hmm. His best-known work is Remember the Titans, Titans oh, lovely. in 2000. Oh, yeah. This was about Herman Boone, played by Denzel Washington, a black coach leading a high school football team in, in Virginia, Virginia. Yeah. during its first season after racial integration. Howard also wrote the script for Ali, for Michael Mann, sharing the credits with three other writers. His final screenplay was Harriet in 2019. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, which did not do very well. No, no. but I thought it was a decent film. I didn't see it. I need to. Arnold Schulman, 97, playwright and screenwriter. His first film was A Hole in the Head, which he adapted from his own play. He won Oscar nominations for Love with the Proper Stranger in 1963, which was an original script, and he won another nomination in 1969 for his adaptation of Philip Roth's Goodbye Columbus. Oh, with the Richard Benjamin. Yes. Yeah. He later wor- his later work included And the Band Played On. Oh, and he said a, a lot of his films were butchered, yeah. and he was stuck with the title anyway. Love with the Proper Stranger is good. good yeah, they, I just recently saw it. I, I think it's my favorite Steve McQueen It's really good. Yeah. He's really good in it. Sylvia Sims, 89, British film theater sure. and TV actress. Made her film debut in the 1956 movie Teenage Bad Girl. Five years later, she appeared as Dirk Bogart's wife in the thriller Victim, the first British film to deal openly with homosexuality. Now, she never achieved fame in Hollywood. Her one notable American film was in Blake Edwards' 
the Tamaran scene in 1974, which she received a BAFTA nomination, but she always appeared in character roles. One of her late, light, late in life performances was as the Queen Mother in Stephen Freer's The Queen. Ah. And she has my favorite line in that movie when told that uh, Princess Diana's funeral was going to be modeled after Tay Bridge, she says, but that's my funeral. <laughs> I made the plans of that myself. I love that line. Cindy Williams, Aww. actress. She won fame for the TV series of the 70s, Laverne and Shirley, with Penny Marshall. Hello. Before that, she appeared in George Lucas's American Graffiti. Wonderful. And, and later its sequel, more American Graffiti. That's an underrated film, by the way. I've never seen it's it. It's actually quite I, good. It got terrible reviews. Lucas it, didn't direct it, that, did he? No, no but it's, it's about them as, the, as they yeah. hit the 60s. It's actually not oh, that. I should the late 60s, I should say. She was also in George Cooker's Travels with My Aunt and Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. Yes. Mm. Awesome. She was fired from Laverne and Shirley in its last season for being pregnant. She sued for $20 million and the case was settled out of court for an undisclosed sum. Uh-huh. Wow. Appeared occasionally on TV after that. Melinda Dillon, 83, stage and film actress. Now, she made her acting debut right out of acting school in the original production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway as Honey. Hmm. That show ran two years, but she was only in it for nine months because she left the play and checked herself into the mental ward of Gracie Square Hospital, <laughs> where she found herself feeling suicidal. Wow. And she stopped acting for three years. Huh? Yeah, she just found the part so overwhelming. I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't either. Uh, she has two Oscar nominations for Supporting Actress for Close, Close Encounters, Encounters sure. of the Third Kind in 1977 and Absence of Malice in 1981. Yeah. Other films include Harry and the Hendersons, Magnolia, hey. Slapshot, The Prince of Tides, and most famously as, as the mother in A Christmas Story. That's right, sure. Burt Bacharach, oh. 94, oh. composer, pop songwriter. Started out as, as a dance band arranger and met the singer Vic Damone, with who he later toured as an accompanist. Then he became Melina Dietrich's musical director in 1958 and toured extensively with her for several years. With lyricist Hal David, he began writing pop songs for the movies in the 1960s, three of them which received Oscar nominations, What's New Pussycat, Alfie, and The Look of Love from Casino Royale. Dusty Springfield. Then he won two Oscars in 1969, writing the original score for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and the music for Raindrops Are Falling on My Head, which won Best Song. Sure. In 1973, he and David wrote the songs for Lost Horizon. Oh, your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> which to this day, I say, is the worst studio-made film ever, which is considered one of the all-time musical flops, and they se- severed their partnership. Backrack continued to write pop songs and in 1981 won his third Oscar for the music for the theme from Arthur, The Best That You Can Do, along with Christopher Cross, Peter Allen, and, and his then wife, right. Carol Bayer Singer. Sure. According to IMDb, he has either written music or his music has appeared in a 709 film and TV. And he shows wow. up in, as a ca- wow. with a cameo in Austin Powers. Yes. 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 In Vegas. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Burt Backer. Yes. Lovely. And Hugh- Thomas Costello is a big fan. Yes. Hugh Hudson, 86, 
director, worked in advertising and made television commercials. <laughs> oh, don't start. <laughs> Please, Josh. <laughs> On top of old Smokey. <laughs> Sorry. And made television commercials in Great Britain. When you're done singing, I'll, fi- I'll finish the... Uh, I'm never okay. done singing. <laughs> He was a second unit director on Midnight Express and then made his feature film debut directing Chariots Thank of Fire you. in 1981, which won four Academy Awards, Loved it. including Best Picture. Still love it. Hudson was was nominated for Best Director, but he lost to Warren Beatty for Reds. Oh, and then he did Greystoke, right? His second Oof. feature, Greystoke, The Legend Yikes. of Tarzan, was also a financial and critical success. It was? Yes, it oh, was. Oh, I thought it was a disaster. Winning three Oscar nominations. Interesting trivia. Zoinks. Robert Town, who did the screenplay, uh, was nominated, but he had disowned the screenplay and he put his dog. Yeah, P.H. Vazic. Who <laughs> I believe is the only dog ever to be nominated <laughs> for an Academy Award. Literal dog. Now, his third film was Revolution, which starred Al Pacino Ooh. and was a failure. And have you ever seen it? Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, I've, yeah, seen, it. I've seen it. I've seen it. And his subsequent films... Odd casting. His subsequent films received a, a very limited release. Uh, My Life So Far, Los Angelo, I Dreamed of Africa. I am not familiar with any of those films. Raquel Welch, 82, Mm. actress and sex symbol. Mm, mm, mm. Her two breakout films from 1966 are One Million Years B.C. and Fantastic Voyage. Other films included Bedazzled, A Hundred Rifles, Myra Breckenridge, Kansas City Bomber, The Last of Sheila, and The Three Musketeers, which won her a Golden Globe Award for Best Comedic Actress in 1974. She's great in that. I love those movies, yeah. She continued to work on television and occasionally on stage, where, to great acclaim, she replaced Lauren Bacall in the musical Woman of the Year. Interesting. And supposedly you couldn't get tickets for it. Wow. It became a... It's one of the few instances where someone replaced the star and it did better. did better. Yeah. Uh, apparently, though, a difficult person to work with. James Mason was quoted as saying that she was the most difficult person wow. she had ever worked with. Wow. Yeah. Mason I? worked a lot of, with a well, lot, of, lot people. of people. Yep. Stella Stevens, 84, mm. actress, called one of the last Hollywood starlets, made her film debut in 1959 in the musical Little Abner, and then she was in John Cassavetti's first studio film, Too Late the Blues. In the 1960s and 70s, she appeared in mostly light fare, including The Courtship of Eddie's Father, The Silencers, How to Save a Marriage and Ruin Your Life, The Ballad of Cable Hogue, mm. The Poseidon Adventure, and perhaps her most famous role opposite Jerry Lewis in The Nutty Professor. She appeared right. in character roles for the rest of her career, 142 films and TV credits. Wow. She really wanted to direct, and no one would no let one her. Would she let finally her. did a couple of B movies. Into two thousand. Interesting. Donald Spoto. Oh, uh, Listen, I'm Jewish, and I'm crossing myself when we, you know, go back to our episode <laughs> on our, our favorite film books, and that's the first name we mentioned. Biographer, wrote biographies of many film people most famous for *The Art of Alfred Hitchcock*, *The Dark Side of Genius*, *The Life of Alfred Hitchcock*, and *Spellbound by Beauty*. Alfred Hitchcock and His Leading Ladies. Which was not very good. It wasn't? I didn't No, I read it, yeah. It, it's, it was not good. I, then I was expecting Dark Side of Genius and The Art Of, and wasn't even close. But Other film and theater biographies included bios of Elizabeth Taylor, James Dean, Laurence Olivier, Lawrence Olivier Marlena Dietrich, Grace Kelly, Joan Crawford, 
Preston Sturges, Tennessee Williams, Larry Lenya, Ingrid Bergman, Audrey Hepburn, The Redgraves, Alan Bates, and Teresa Wright. Wow. Plus he wrote uh, extensively on religion. Yes, Christian mysticism. Right. The only other book of his besides the Hitch, the two Hitchcock books that I read was the one on uh, Lottie Lanya, and I thought that was actually pretty good because mm-hmm. I found her fascinating. I She's didn't, really interesting. And I didn't know anything about her. She's not just Rose. I, I have to say, if you're interested in film, really should read The Art of Alfred Hitchcock. That's a it's a great book. Yeah. And I love Dark Side of Genius, too, because there's all the critical stuff, but also the biographical stuff, and it's interesting how they come together. Mm-hmm. Great writer. Richard Belzer, 78. The Bells! Comedian and actor. His film debut was in The Groove Tube, but huh. it, which I did not remember. I mean, I like, saw The Groove Tube, but I didn't know... He, I think my dad took me to see it when I was oh, like 12 or something. Good for your dad. <laughs> I admire that. Good job, Bob Cabot, wherever you are. But appeared in a few films, including Scarface, Author, Author, Men on the Moon, and Night Shift. He's best known for his character, Detective John Munch, which he appeared in on Homicide, Woo-hoo! Life on the Street, Law and Order SVU, and The Wire. He appeared as that character in over 500 hours wow. of televised. That's amazing. That is just amazing. And the last one, Walter Mirsch. 101. Wow, I didn't even know he was still alive. Pioneering producer. He produced mostly uh, B-action films in the 1950s until he struck it big with Invasion of the Body Snatchers. With his two brothers, they formed the Mirsch Corporation, which produced movies for United Artists from the late 1950s through the 70s. Their films were nominated for a total of 87 Academy Awards and won 28. Um... Two of his films, two of their films, won Best Picture Oscars back to back. Apartment. The Apartment and West Side Story. Yeah. Other films that they produced were Some Like It Hot, The Magnificent Seven, One, Two, Three, The the Great Escape, The Pink Panther, A Shot in the Dark, The Fortune Cookie, Fiddler on the Roof, and others. Now, Mirsch himself produced In the Heat of the Night, Mm. and he won the Academy Award for it as Best Picture. And uh, he is the only person to win not only the Academy Award, but the uh, Irving Thalberg Award for producing and the Gene Herschelt Humanitarian. Humanitarian. He's wow. the only wow. one who has the triple. Uh, when raising money for In the Heat of the Night, he was told from financiers that it would start a riot in southern states. <laughs> His reaction was, if it doesn't play in the South, it doesn't play in the South. What it has to say is so very important that the picture has to be seen. The novelist Elmore Leonard dedicated the book Get Shorty to him. Wow. To Walter Mirsch. That's high praise. To Walter Mirsch, one of the good guys. And that's that's, and that's it, it. Wow. That's oh, the Macaulay. Lost a lot of... But to lose Gina Lola Bridget and Raquel Welch in, in, yeah. one, in between one episode, is, is that's, that's yeah. something. But, but I do... I like doing this because I do learn about people. Yeah, no I one... I, the, the Melinda Dillon, I had no idea. I, I really... Yeah, no, I mean, me. I know her from Close Encounters. That's yeah. the first time I... I mean, I knew she was in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but I didn't realize she... It affected her so much, Yeah, yeah. All right, and so we turn from uh, from those who have left us to every America's favorite segment of the show. That would be Johnny Myers quote quiz, rivaling the last question on Jeopardy. Well, yeah. Let's... <laughs> okay, so the last time we met, because it was the holiday season, I gave you two quotes. First one was, 
Why kill myself wearing when I'll end up just as dead anyway? That is from The Bicycle Thieves, Vittorio De Sica, oh 1948. The other one was, you don't yell at a sleepwalker. He may fall and break his neck. <laughs> Which is from Sunset Boulevard, yeah, Billy Wilder, 1950. And the new quote is, drumroll. I had a long talk with that lady in musical therapy, Johnny. And she says it Mozart's the boy for you. Oh, I The broom that sweeps the cobwebs away. Love it. All right, if you th- if you know it, and uh, devoted listeners probably will, uh, check our website. That's www.vintagesand.com for uh, the uh, answer to the monthly quote quiz and tons of information, uh, additional information about our episodes, and um, you know uh, the place where we try to open some more doors, which is the whole purpose of this uh, of this endeavor. So. Uh, we are gonna. We are gathering next Sunday, which is March twelfth for the Oscars. I'm really looking forward to week that. Week from Sunday, yeah. Yeah, week from Sunday, and therefore our next episode, probably we'll do in early April, is going to be our annual Oscar recap. Hopefully, no one will slap anybody um, yeah. who doesn't ask to be slapped, and uh, we can get past that. And we'll also talk about our favorite films of the year. And I just want to. Stick in the, I'm thrilled that my favorite film of the year got so many nominations, and that is everything, everywhere, all at once. And I, I, Kate Blanchett should win Best Actress because that was the best performance of the year by anybody. But I would not be sad if Michelle. Yeah, I won. feel no, I She's feel the same way. Yeah. To, I, know, I feel the same way. I'm yeah. glad she finally got noticed for yes for for what she's done. And a little piece of trivia: <coughs> she is not the first Asian. To be nominated for an Academy Award for no, Best Actress in, in for Best Actress, and it's Merle Obron right. was half Asian. That's right, but she never let anyone know. Huh. Nobody yeah. knew until after she died. Yeah. Right. What shocked me was that Merle Obron there, got an Academy Award nomination. <laughs> there have been Asian women uh, nominated for what, Wuthering Heights for supporting, for supporting, yeah, but never but for ne- right for, for Wuthering Heights. Is that no? It's a movie I never heard of. She was not nominated for Wuthering Heights, nor should she. Was Wuthering Heights? Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights. <laughs> I just saw Emily. How can I? Uh... Withering comment. Yes. <laughs> so, was was anime? We've talked about anime Wong a couple of times. Yeah, she, that character is a big figure in the in Babylon. Mm-hmm. You know. As, oh yeah. Is was she ever nominated? No. She didn't. Wasn't nominated no. for no. Shanghai. No. Uh, no. 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 Really? No. 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 She was so good. Huh? Way no. ahead of her time. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well. Yeah. All right. So anyway. Uh, come join us for that. Think of us at your Oscar party. We wish you best of luck in your Oscar pool. Um, any uh, any upset picks, gentlemen? Upset for picks? our ops- for our Oscar pool uh, listener participants. I don't think so. No, it's going to be a pretty straightforward year. Yeah, Elvis for costume design. <laughs> is, is he going to win? He might. He might. He's great in it. I have he to is, say. Yeah. I have to say. I've seen all five. Best Actor nominees, and they're all really good. Huh, all five of them. And uh, I voted for, in the SAG Awards, I voted for uh, Bill Nye. For, um, I refuse to see it. Oh, you know. Josh, you're wrong. No, I know. You're um, wrong. I can't. No. Akira's in my ten, top ten well, of I, all time. I, I, can't. I, prefer, I can't. I prefer the original, but it... But the I know, I know. Good. He's great. And, I'm the, sure and, it's great. and uh, do you know there were people uh, when... Uh, Brendan Fraser's probably going to win. 
Yes, which a movie I don't particularly care for. I you, I haven't seen it yet. Oh wow! Yeah, I know. I I well, it's I, available on demand. I think. I went to see. Uh, I had a choice between that and Women Talking, and I went to see Women Talking and said, so "Talking is amazing. It's excellent. Amazing. Excellent. I'm I'm really rooting for Sarah Polley right, adaptation. When we did which episode we were talking, you three, you yeah. were talking about Sarah Polley yeah. as director, yeah. and she and when I saw this, I was like, "Holy crap, Mike Wright again." There you go. Again? Yeah. That was the first time. <laughs> off and right. Off and right. So there we go. So I will leave you with the thought that Vintage Sand is now and as ever a Five Nines and a Four production. Uh, I want to thank Melissa for her tech help, Mama Sue for the use of the hall, Gabby for the ass-kicking logo. Uh, remember that we are now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud, exploring the idea, Johnny, of, uh, of getting us on YouTube as well. Yes. I'm looking into that. Uh, please check out the website again www.vintagesand.com you are all with us in spirit for the Oscar party on the 12th happy watching be safe Uh, good luck in the pool and we hope as ever that your favorite films may always be streaming